we're officially into the Christmas season. We, we weathered Black Friday and, and the Christmas tree lighting snowstorm that we had. We got through that. We've done Cyber Monday, and then on Thursday of this last week, we stepped out of November and into December, so surely the Christmas season is upon us officially. I look for yeah, there's a woohoo in there. And I do. I look forward to this, this time of year, as do many of you. I know some don't get too excited about that, and I, I kind of get that, but I really do look forward to uh, these weeks within the life of our church family leading up to Christmas because they really do afford us a wonderful opportunity uh, in so many ways to be able to enjoy for an extended time the, the great theme of the coming of God into uh, our world in the person of the Lord Jesus to save and to redeem. And we get to think about that as a theme for several weeks, break out of our study series in First John and head off in this direction. And to think about Jesus coming, that is something to get excited about, isn't it? That's something to sing about, as we were just doing a moment ago. That is something to celebrate. And so into a Christmas direction, we turn today in God's Word. And before our morning concludes together, uh, we're going to be around the Lord's table. You've already noticed perhaps that is uh, waiting for us here in just a moment. We call it the Table of Remembrance sometimes. And, and we want to be heart ready and mind ready for that sacred moment that we're going to share. And so I, I thought perhaps one way that we could do that, turn in the, into the theme of the season of Christmas, and maybe even learn a thing or two about the well-known Christmas story that we might not have known up to this point, and all of that helping us prepare us for the communion table, I thought perhaps a blessing could be waiting for us in the Old Testament book of Micah this morning, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, which coincidentally is one of the verses that all of you read aloud together during that opening uh, scripture segment that we shared. So I'm going to ask you if you would, grab your Bible or your phone or whatever and join me in Micah chapter 5 this morning, about three-fifths of the way into your Bible. You'll want to go, and if you get into some strange sounding names like uh, Nahum or Habakkuk or Jonah or one of those, you're going to be very close to the book of Micah. And there is a little note page in your bulletin. We'd invite you to take that as well because that, I think, will be of some help along the way. Micah 5.2, it's up on the screen. It reads like this. But you, Bethlehem Ephetah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who will be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Not a new verse to you, I'm guessing, if you've been a Christian or in the church for a while, for a few Christmas seasons anyway. The verse says that Jesus steps into our story, into the human stream at a place called Bethlehem. God not only puts on flesh and breaks into time and space in the most unexpected way through the virgin birth, but he makes his entrance into our world at a most unlikely, unexpected place. But as you are going to see with me, it is the perfect place for God to have chosen to bring his son into the world. Now, the book of Micah, brothers and sisters, can I just ask you when the last time was you spent time 
in the book of Micah? When was the last time you did your devotionals time out of the book of Micah? Has it been a while? (laughs) Maybe a little while. Maybe the pages are stuck together in that place. Well, let's unstick those pages for just a few moments. By way of a little bit of background, the book of Micah was written by one of God's ancient Holy Spirit-inspired prophets. His name is Micah. About the year 700 B.C., during a time of deplorable spiritual decline that was taking place among God's people, the Jewish people. Despite God's countless blessings of protection and prosperity and provision for the kingdom, which is now divided into Israel and Judah, the, the nation is pretty much, by this time, relegated uh, God to a place of non-importance in, in the nation's life. The, the people have they've kind of sidelined God, if you will, just pushed him out of their way and off, pushed him out of the way and off to the side. And so uh, Micah, as you might know, is a fairly short book. It's only seven chapters long, and many of the Old Testament books are way longer than that. But, man, these are heavy chapters, um, very sobering chapters, as God, through this prophet, warns the nation that soon a just and severe discipline from his hand is going to come upon his people because of their continued neglect and disregard of him for their rebellion, for their defiant, uh, kind of just bold, uh, sinful uh, practices, God's going to bring severe discipline. So it's a hard and sobering book. And yet, even so, sprinkled here and there throughout these seven chapters in this very hard message of impending discipline, God includes words of hope. Yes, the Lord is going to judge the sin of his people. He's a holy God. He is just. He, he cannot just look away or ignore what his people are doing. So that is going to happen. But underneath this, this sober message and really driving the message forward, is the truth that there is a future for all who will humbly repent and turn back to their God. That's the message that is underneath this book. And so it is that in the middle of this this hard, ominous warning, God drops a word of Christmas wonder, a word of Jesus-centered hope into Micah's message. It's this verse that points us to the very first Christmas, It is as much a part of the Christmas story as any of the verses that we know of and are so familiar with about Christmas from the scriptures. Once again, how does it read? But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, that's a strange sounding word, but it it simply refers to the province that that ancient Judah, uh, the province of ancient Judah where Bethlehem was located. So that's all that word really needs to mean for us in this moment. But you, Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. We know the Christmas story and how Bethlehem is a part of that story. We know what happened there. But brothers and sisters, have you ever asked yourself the question, why out of all of the countless cities and towns and villages that are in the world, why did the Lord choose such an out-of-the-way, tiny, small little burg as Bethlehem 
to be the place for the birth of the greatest figure ever to enter the human story. Why Bethlehem? I mean, if a site selection committee had been appointed, much like they they do for choosing a site for the Winter Olympics and the Summer Olympics, you know, they they go through this very elaborate, long, drawn-out process using a committee to find those cities for the Olympic Games. If such a committee had been formed to pick the city or the place where Jesus would come into the world, Bethlehem would never have made the list. It just would not. There would have been any number of reasons to favor other locations. For example, why not Rome? It was, after all, the seat of power in the known world of that day. It was the home of the Caesar. The mere mention of the, 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 the city of Rome, man, that, that, kinda, that, that sent surrounding nations to trembling in great fear, cowering. It was the world's greatest capital. Why should the Son of the living God not be born amidst the majesty and the grandeur of Rome? Or, or maybe the city of Alexandria in North Africa, in Egypt, was not only a city that was impressive for its size and its beauty, but it was the uncontested center of intellectual learning and scholarship in Jesus' day. The greatest thinkers, writers, philosophers, they all spent time in Alexandria. It had the greatest library in the world at that time. So wouldn't that be a fitting place for the all-wise, all-knowing God in flesh to make his entrance into the world? And if not Rome, if not Alexandria, assuming that God wished to keep Jesus' birth maybe within the, the borders of the promised land, then, then why not Jerusalem? Why not Jerusalem? 611 times that, that city is mentioned in the Old Testament for centuries From the day that David captured it and made it his capital city, Jerusalem was the center of the spiritual, social, spiritual life of the nation. The magnificent temple that God instructed Solomon to build, it was located there. The royal palace of the king, it was in Jerusalem. Our site selection committee would have been hard-pressed not to recommend Jerusalem as the city privileged to welcome the new king. And yet Jerusalem doesn't make the cut. And if God wanted to go small, then why not Nazareth? Why not Nazareth? Small compared to Jerusalem for sure, but this seemed like a a logical favorite because it was already the home of Mary and Joseph, Jesus' soon-to-be earthly parents. Nazareth would certainly have much to commend it simply from a, a convenience and a relational standpoint. Life could go on as usual for Joseph and Mary and the the newborn child that they would care for. They would be surrounded by family and longtime friends. So no huge interruption in the flow of life. But no, not Nazareth. So, So why Bethlehem? By the ancient prophet Micah's own words, Bethlehem was only a small village. In fact, too little, God says, to be among the clans of Judah. That's how it's stated. Too little. Bethlehem is even small when you set it alongside of other small towns in the region. 
I mean, it is really tiny. It is really obscure. Hardly worth mentioning is Bethlehem. It's never risen to a place of prominence in its entire history, even though there are two events in the Bible uh, that do stand out from its past, and, and I would want you to be aware of those. As it turns out, it was in Bethlehem that Israel's most famous earthly king, poet, songwriter, war hero, David, was born. He was born in this little town called Bethlehem. So one great king has come out of this tiny village in the past. Perhaps more than a coincidence then that the king of all kings, the, the king of heaven, should be born in this place. In fact, Micah actually makes that connection. If you look at verse 2 once again, 250 years after David had been born there, 700 years before Jesus will be born there, God says, out of you, Bethlehem, will come for me one who will what? Be a ruler. He'll be the ruler over Israel. An eternal king with origins that predate time, says verse 2, an eternal king will make his entrance into the world in the same town that King David came from. Now, is that just coincidental? Hmm, probably not. God has a plan here. And before all of that part of the story occurred, the Bible tells us about an amazing, true story, a love story that finds its setting as well in the little village of Bethlehem. It's the story of Ruth and Boaz. Familiar with the story at all? Yeah, the details are preserved in the Old Testament book that bears, bears Ruth's name. And in that book, Boaz comes to the aid of Ruth, who is a non-Jewish woman who has become destitute following the death of her Jewish husband. And so she faces a future that is harsh, that is grim, that is hopeless, no one to care for her, provide for her, protect her. Boaz, a relative of her dead husband, though, he comes to her. He becomes her kinsman redeemer. You familiar with the phrase? Kinsman redeemer. And he, and, and he falls in love with Ruth and eventually asks her to be his wife. And so it's really a, a, a wonderful true story of love and rescue that points forward in a way to the, the, the marvelous way that Jesus, as our kinsman redeemer, who, like Boaz, will come from Bethlehem and he will rescue us. He will redeem us. In fact, Ruth and Boaz actually are David's great-grandparents. Did you know that? Yeah? Yeah. Maybe that's why Jesus was born in Bethlehem. There's this, this connection as well. They're part of the story of this little town. And they may figure into God's choosing of this place. But for the most part, people came, people went, they lived, they died in Bethlehem with no sense of destiny, too little to be counted among the clans of Judah. No thought that in this place, from this place, a world-changing, eternity-changing event was going to take place. It was too small. It was too tiny. It was of no importance. In fact, the idea of Bethlehem's obscurity, its unlikely future fame is captured not only by Micah 5 verse 2, but it's also captured in a verse that we sang a moment ago together. Uh, you remember the words? 
O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above the deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. What was the writer of that Christmas song trying to communicate? He was trying to communicate that Bethlehem was no place, right? It was this no place on the map, little tiny village, forgotten, of no importance. It lay in a deep and dreamless sleep until some night shepherds came running into it all out of breath because angels had sung a song about a newborn king there. And they come running into the, to the little village and suddenly it, it, things are starting to change a little bit. And it lay silent as the stars went by until when? Well, until this miraculous star shows up And it stops right over that town, right? And magi from the east come and and they, they, they bring gifts for this little child telling his mom and dad that this is the newborn king. But church family, before all of that, before David, before the kinsman redeemer story uh, in Ruth, before the shepherds or the star or the magi, before all of that, there may have been something else that moved the heart of God to make this little town his son's entry point into our world. Why Bethlehem? Well, perhaps the answer lies in the name itself. Beit Lachem. Beit Lachem. Can you do that chem thing? Beit Lachem. That's, that's how you would say that if you were a good Hebrew. Beit Lachem. The word Beit, it means house or place. And the word Lachem means bread. So, anglicize that pronunciation and you get Bethlehem, which literally means house of bread. Did you know that? Yeah, now you know. Now you know that this is part of the Christmas story. What a fitting name for the birthplace of Jesus. And I'd love to share with you three reasons why that is true. Why this is the perfect name of the town where Jesus makes his appearance. On your note page near the bottom, notice why Bethlehem? Well, for one reason, Jesus was born there so that he might identify with the most common person. And who would that be? (laughs) That would be you and me. Just common folks, right? Jesus was not born in the house of royalty. He was not born in the house of riches, nor the house of superior intellect or fame or celebrity. He wasn't born in Rome or Alexandria or Jerusalem or Nazareth. He was not born uh, in any political, commercial, cultural, educational, social, socially significant city or of the day. When, when Micah, the ancient mouthpiece for God, foretold the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem 700 years before it happened, God actually was emphasizing Bethlehem's lack of significance, not its significance. He pointed out its smallness, its utter ordinariness, if I could put it that way. You, Bethlehem, are only a small village among all the clans of Judah, you are so insignificant. 
so small. Beit Lachem, the house of bread. Now, truth be told, brothers and sisters, there is nothing more common or ordinary in our daily lives than bread. Think about that. It is the most common food commodity among all of the peoples of the world. It is quite literally to be found everywhere in the world. You will find bread. It doesn't matter where you go, you're going to find bread. When all other foodstuffs are gone, bread will be the one thing that lasts maybe or remains to the very end. It will be the last food that you would have in a famine is bread. It is just so common, the underlying staple of the global diet, which means then that everybody can relate to it, right? Everybody can relate to bread. On your note page, very common, everybody can relate to it. But what about Jesus? Was he, how, how did he come into our world? Was he, was he just a giant glowing-in-the-dark kind of a person? No. 750 years before Bethlehem, God said this about Jesus. Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3. We'll put them on the screen for you. For he, that is Jesus, grew up before him, that is God, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. To say it another way, Jesus looked what? Ordinary. Very ordinary. Very common. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. We would look at Jesus, and we wouldn't think anything about him being the king of the universe. 750 years before the first Christmas, God saying, when my son comes, don't, don't look for some physically impressive leading man type. Don't look for one who's dressed in finery and lives on Snob Hill. It's not going to happen. My son will be very ordinary, as common as bread. So that anyone can identify with him, and he in turn can identify with the most ordinary, the most lowly of persons. I mean, think about it. Jesus' birth, it was announced first. The very first persons to know about the birth of Jesus was who? The shepherds, right? The shepherds outside of Bethlehem that, that night when the angels came and sang to them. They're the very first to learn of Jesus' arrival. And yet, there could not be anyone more common in Jesus' day, unextraordinary than a shepherd. And that's who gets the first word that the, that the king has come. And, and his earthly parents, what do you have? You've got a teenage girl and you've got a carpenter husband. Nothing extraordinary about them. Very common people. No different than you and me. Jesus' arrival was not announced to the religious elite, the Pharisees in Jerusalem. It was not announced to the politically uh, powerful in Rome like Caesar. No, his cradle was a manger, a common animal feeding trough, and the roof over his head was a stable barn roof. That was Jesus, born in Beit Lachem. And it was God's way of saying, you don't have to be rich to know my son. You don't have to be famous 
or, or popular to know him. You don't have to be socially positioned in your community to have audience with him. You don't have to be smart with lots of letters after your name either. You can just be you. I believe Bethlehem, as the location for the coming of Jesus, it just sets the tone for the entire redemption story. It tells us that God wants us. Not so famous, very average, very ordinary, garden variety, you and me. In fact, the Bible says that the only thing that you and I have to be for Jesus to take an active interest in us is to be what? Lost in our sin. That's it. I can do that. Can you? (laughs) Yeah. Every single one of us is certainly that. Before we know Jesus as Savior. Jesus will say in Luke chapter 19 verse 10, For the Son of Man came, that's Christmas, to seek and to save what? He came into Bethlehem very little insignificant, ordinary Bethlehem in order to save the lost. God says through Micah, I want my son available to all because all are lost. He is born in the house of bread that he might identify. And then if you flip your note page over, secondly, Jesus is born in Bethlehem to satisfy, to satisfy our deepest spiritual hunger. He came to Bethlehem to identify, but more than that, to satisfy. And, and, and to chase this thought down with me, if you'll leave your, kind of leave your finger tucked here in Micah chapter 5, would you run way to the right in your Bible and go into the New Testament all the way to the Gospel of John and find chapter 6? John chapter 6, verse 25. Perhaps you would recall the scene that John is going to tell us about here in chapter 6. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus feeds 5,000, which is more probably somewhere between 10 and 12,000, if you include the women and the children. And he feeds all of these people with the contents of a little boy's picnic basket. Remember the story? Remember the moment? Five loaves of bread and two pieces of fish. And with those, Jesus feeds more than 10,000 people. After the miracle of that, the people think to themselves in verse 15, hey, if we make Jesus our king, he can do this for us every day. We we will have an endless supply of food. Let's make him our king. Well, Jesus knows that this is the true intent of the people. And so he leaves this enormous crowd that has just eaten its fill. But the crowd follows him, and eventually they catch up with him in verse 25. And so here's what we read, beginning in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves, the bread. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, right, stop for a second. 
In other words, Jesus, what would we have to do so that we could make bread like you do and do it all the time? In other words, what they're really saying is we're not so much interested in you as we are in what you did. And we want to do that. We want to do that miracle. So how did that happen? Tell us. Verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. That's what you really need to be thinking about, Jesus says. So they said to him, well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? (laughs) What work do you perform? Now, you really see the spiritually dull heart here in this moment. They just finished eating this extraordinary miracle meal, and they're saying, what are you going to do? to prove that you're something special. Verse 31, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you, gives you, present tense, right now, gives you the what? The true Bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Who's the true bread? Jesus, yes. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I'm that bread. Come from God. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus says, I am God's provision to you, and I wish you would see that. The crowd was missing it, unfortunately. All they really wanted was free food. They didn't want their lives transformed. They just wanted their bellies full. But the bread metaphor is so perfect because Jesus is saying, I can satisfy. I can satisfy, I can gratify, I can can strengthen you spiritually just as bread does that for your physical body. I can do that for your spiritual life. I am the bread of life. Unfortunately, just as in Jesus' day, many in our day are missing Jesus eating at the wrong table, desiring the wrong food, looking for meaning and fulfillment in this life, looking to be satisfied but only by only what the world can supply. We're surrounded by lots of things that will bring temporary happiness and satisfaction. But Jesus says there is only one thing that really satisfies the eternal hunger in the soul. And that is the bread of life. And I'm that. That's what Jesus says. I am the bread, verse 35, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus would be born in the house of bread. And rest assured that that's not an accident because he is what? He's the bread of life. The first Christmas took place in Bethlehem. In Bethlehem. Because God was determined to satisfy our deepest spiritual need. So whenever you hear that word Bethlehem and sing it in, your, in, in the songs of the season and all of that, come back to this thought. That's no accident. 
God chose that place specifically because the bread of life would come from there. It's a great thought. Born in Bethlehem that he might identify, that he might satisfy. And then third there on your note page, Jesus was born in Bethlehem that he might clarify. But that he might clarify that the bread of life is, is really a choice that we each must make for ourselves. Someone has said that a wise person frequently restates the obvious. Now, I don't know if you're going to consider me wise or not, but I'm going to state something that is very obvious to all of us. If one person eats a meal, it doesn't satisfy any other person's hunger. Did you know that? Was that obvious? That's really obvious, isn't it? One person can't eat a meal and all the rest of us be satisfied by that. In fact, today at lunch, try this little experiment. (laughs) Sit down at the table with your family or your friends and and determine that you're not going to eat or you're not going to drink anything. Uh, You'll just be at the table. You'll participate in the conversation. Enjoy the time. But you won't take a bite of food. You won't drink a drop of the drink. And then when everyone else is done and they push back from the table full and satisfied, take note of how you feel. Yeah, crabby. They're going to be ready for a nap and you're going to be ready to eat, right? All of of their eating of that good food, it did not satisfy you in any way that they ate well. If you want those gnawing hunger pains in your stomach to go away, if you want that growl to stop, you have to eat. You must choose to do that. Nobody can do that for you. You must make that decision, and you must take the action. That's really obvious. It's no less obvious with regards to spiritual truth and our spiritual lives and spiritual hunger. No one can believe. For us either, can they? No one can do that. No one is saved by another person's faith. On the first Christmas, life came into the world by way of the house of bread. And so there is a sense in which all who would have life, all who would know forgiveness of sin, all who would have the assurance that that this life, when it's done, they'll be with God. There's no doubt about that. All who want that must go to Beit Lachem themselves, personally, and answer the question, who is Jesus going to be in my life? No one can answer that for you. Was he just a good man? Was he just a a remarkable teacher? Was he just a noble example uh, of, of how to live and we should emulate that? Or is he the God-man who came into our world at Bethlehem to pay sin's penalty for our life, to buy us back for God from sin and death to life, forgiveness? Who is Jesus in your life? Look again. Listen to Jesus' words from John 6. Let's reread verse 35 and then let's continue. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me 
shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's something we each must do. Verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And we say, amen and amen. Church, family, and friends, salvation is at one and the same time a call from God to partake of Jesus, the living bread, and it is a decision on our part to take the one who is offered to us. God, God's calling us to take the bread, but we must determine to take the bread as well. At Bethlehem, we decide. Is Jesus who the Bible says he is? Did he come from the house of bread so that he might be my bread of life? Each of us must answer that question for ourselves. And the answer that we land upon, well, it determines our eternity, doesn't it? The Apostle John will write in his epistle of 1 John, which we've become uh, increasingly familiar with over the course of the last many months, In chapter 5 of 1 John, verses 11 and 12, these words. Do you suppose we could read these aloud together off the screen, church family? Let's do it. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Whoever takes the bread and in faith takes it into his or her life, has what? Life. Whoever does not do that does not have life. Oh, thank you, Heavenly Father, for sending your Son to, of all places, Beit Lachem, the house of bread. Let's pray together, church. What a joy to to share these, these truths, Lord, and and I just ask that perhaps uh, we've added a little bit to our, our understanding of how you think about and look at Christmas, the coming of your son into the world. We have our warm artist renderings of this little town and the star perched above it and, and all of that, the warm glow. And, and, and then that's, that's something. But, but when you look at Bethlehem, You look at it through entirely different eyes. You look at it as the place where you sent the bread of life into our world. May that be what we think about when we think about Bethlehem this year. And we we sing about it and we share its truth with other people. May we think about that, that Lord Jesus, you came as the bread of life. We're about to gather around your table now, Lord, and. Remember that the reason you came was so that you could die and rise again. We just trust that these moments we share as a church family would be just be sweet to you, be a delight to your heart, 
and an encouragement to us as we obey you. And remember, by the bread and by the cup, you are coming into our world. This is your time. We give it to you with glad hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.